Look, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. So says Lot, a man touted by the Bible as being extraordinarily righteous. He says it to a group of men who are intent on committing gang rape and he is offering up his own daughters in an attempt to distract or satisfy them. Now, the men do not take him up on the offer for reasons that we might get into, and that, I guess, is a good thing, but really, put yourself in the position of those two girls for just a moment. How do you feel as you hear your father say such a thing? How do you feel about a father who is capable of saying such a thing about you? Especially if, as I suspect, this wasn't just a one-off offer, but a part of a pattern in the attitude of Lot towards these young women, his daughters. I mean, that's the kind of thing that can warp you, leave you with a false view of your self-worth and potential. Why, Perhaps it could even incline you to behave in self-destructive ways. So how did this affect these two vulnerable young women? Let's find out. I am once again going to have to put a warning on this episode. This one is also going to be an extremely biblical story. It gets explicit, and so you might say that it is not really a story for everyone Except it is all right there in the biblical text. So really don't blame me. If you have to blame anyone, go after the author of Genesis. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 2.11 the women formerly known as the Daughters of Lot. Bible doesn't name them. As far as Genesis is concerned, they are just daughter one and daughter two. And in many ways, that is a good way to think of them. They are little more than ciphers, bargaining chips to be used by others. But that is about to change as they, by their decisive action, make names for themselves. But That is not quite yet. And for the moment they stand, unnamed, side by side, at the mouth of a cave. Their father sleeps inside, and by a trick of the form of the place, the stone of the cave seems to concentrate and magnify the sound of his snoring, until it surrounds them like a wall as they stand there, thinking and remembering. They look out over the hills towards the plain. How long has it been now? Three weeks? Or has it been four? 
yet still the smoke rises from the destroyed cities. It is a dark smudge on the horizon, and it looks like it will never go away. They lived in the city of Sodom for years, but they can't say that they miss it or are sad to see it gone. The Sodomites had never been very good at welcoming strangers, and they and their parents had come to the place as strangers. Father had arrived with many flocks and other possessions, a prosperous man who had done well enough in the world, and he had arrived with the hope and the expectation that he would join in the trade guilds and other groups in the city, and that they could work together to build up mutual prosperity. But the men of Sodom were interested in no such things. They banded together to shut Lot out. They wouldn't let him buy or sell in the marketplace. They wouldn't even socialize with him. In these overt and many more subtle ways, they let the family know that they would never be truly accepted in Sodom. But father was determined and he knew that he did have at least one way to get into sodomite society, his daughters. He determined that he would use them. He identified two families whose names were highly respected throughout the city, but who had fallen on hard business times. He knew that if he offered each of them one of the girls, they wouldn't care which one, and a good-sized dowry, they wouldn't be able to say no. They knew it, too. But it didn't stop the disgust from showing on their faces when they accepted Lot's offer and the marriages were arranged. Yes, they'd take his daughters, but that didn't mean they had to like it. The sons of the families weren't in on the discussions, of course, and they were furious. They had no say in the matter as far as their families were concerned, but they didn't hesitate to make their displeasure known throughout the city. They frequented the most notorious brothels and the shrines devoted to the fertility goddesses, so much that the prostitutes would greet them by name. They also swore that they would never take Lot's daughters to their beds, and would certainly never sully their family names by getting any children off of them so it seemed that the girls were going to be denied even the honor of becoming mothers. Lot didn't care, of course. He had his entree into sodomite society, and he was happily laying his plans for the joint wedding, swearing that it would be the biggest party that Sodom had ever seen. The only person that the sisters could talk to, the only person in the entire city that even had a clue what they were feeling, was their mother. She could understand, because she didn't have a name either, at least not one that anyone would ever think important enough to remember. She was furious about what Lot was doing to his only children, but she dared not speak to him about it. So she wept for them, and with them, and then she dried her eyes, and tried to pretend that it would all work out. Don't you fret, girls, she said. Once those boys get you home, they will see what fine, strong sons you will bear them, and they will change their tune. They didn't believe her, but they loved her, 
for saying it anyways. It was about two weeks before the wedding, and all of the preparations were in full swing. The family storehouse was overflowing with skins of wine and with flour and raisin cakes. The animals were being fed until it seemed that they would burst. Lot was clearly planning to make the double wedding the social event of the sodomite season. And as a result, it was the only thing that people had been talking about for weeks. They mostly talked about it with disdain, of course. But they were talking about it. And that was good enough for Lot. But suddenly... With two weeks to go, the weddings dropped off of everyone's radar because they had something new to be scandalized about. Two handsome strangers had appeared in the city, and if there was anything that pulled all of the sodomites together, it was their general hatred for anyone who was not from Sodom. The men of the town gathered together to come up with a plan to make sure that the two men moved on as soon as possible. It was bad enough, they declared, that Lot and his family had somehow managed to get a toehold in the place. They would make damn sure that nothing like that would happen to these two new strangers. It was an ancient law, sacred to all of the gods, that strangers should always be offered hospitality in their travels. The men of Sodom knew this law well, and they knew that the gods severely punished those who disobeyed it. But the future husbands of the two sisters blamed their present predicament on the fact that when Lot had first visited the city, someone had welcomed him into their home. Look at what has happened since, they declared. Look at how this new family has come to live among us and act like they are one of us. We vow that no such thing shall ever be allowed to happen again. And so, even though the gods may slay us, we will not allow these new strangers to enter into our homes. And all of the men of Sodom swore likewise. Lot was not a part of the ad hoc meeting of the men of Sodom. They never invited him to anything, so why would they make him part of any such discussion? But, of course, what that meant was that Lot made no vow when the other men did. It was a great oversight on the part of the men of Sodom, but it was not really surprising. They didn't think anything of Lot or of his family at any other time, why would they think of him now? And Lot was odd in one thing. He would do almost anything to ingratiate himself to the people of the city, but there was one thing he wouldn't do, and that was di disrespect the gods. He had seen too much in the time that he had spent with his uncle Abram. He knew that an angry god was the very last thing that you wanted to have said against you. So, when Lot finally heard that the two strangers had been sitting in the marketplace for hours and no one had even spoken to them, he felt that he had no choice. He spoke to his wife and to his daughters. 
I am going to the marketplace, he said. I will supplicate these two strangers that everyone has been talking about. They must come and stay at our house tonight. I will not risk the wrath of the gods. Anyways, it is the right thing to do. The two girls had not often had reason to admire their father for anything. So it was a strange sensation that they felt as they watched him go out that afternoon. Was it actually possible that he could do something that was not calculated to help him climb the social ladder in the city? Was it possible for him to think of anything other than the sycophantic pleasing of the people who despised him? Maybe there was more to this man than they thought. The men of Sodom were furious when they heard that the two strangers had entered and were actually eating in the house of Lot. And of course, no one was more worked up about it than his two future son-in-laws. They insisted that if something was not done immediately, if some clear message was not sent, it would not be long until all of Sodom was overtaken by foreigners. Are we going to take in the dregs and the rejects of every nation, they asked? Make no mistake, when other nations send their people to Sodom, they are not sending their bests. They are sending people who have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems to us. They're bringing wine, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people, but if we don't draw a line in the sand and send these two men away ashamed, it will never end. There was one sure way to shame any man, and everyone knew what they were talking about. The very best way to destroy a man's honor was to turn him into the very lowest form of life of all, to turn him into a woman. Gang rape of defeated soldiers was a time-tested method of subjugation, for it humiliated enemies in such a way that they would never recover. The men of Sodom, and indeed of many cities, had engaged in such assaults before. The future sons-in-law of Lot argued that these two strangers were no less enemies of the city than were defeated soldiers. They should treat them likewise. And somehow, despite the fact that it was unheard of to do such a thing to traveling strangers, despite the fact that everyone knew that such a thing was offensive to all of the gods, the men of Sodom were convinced. Gang rape it would be they all swore that they would not leave the men undefiled. The daughters of Lot, for their part, had no idea how worked up the men of Sodom were getting. All they knew late that afternoon was that their father had brought home two of the handsomest men that they had ever seen. Young women did not speak to men, especially strange men, who were guests in the house. 
but that did not stop the two sisters from batting their eyes and stealing sidelong glances as they served wine and bread to the men. The two men were kind and, and gracious, unlike any men that they had ever met, certainly unlike the men that they were supposed to marry. The two men spoke quietly, with strange accents between themselves, and seemed to be weighing some difficult decision. So the sisters moved through a fog of fantasy, while reality was gathering like a dark cloud outside in the street. Before long, the men of Sodom outside the door erupted in shouts and curses, and the sisters' spell was broken. At first they had no idea what was happening. They heard the voices of a few hundred men shouting incoherently, but then a chant began to emerge from the chaos. Bring them out! Bring them out! Lot's face was white as he went to the door. He opened it as little as possible as he slipped outside to stand before the men. My friends, my neighbors, he, he stammered. How can you ask for such a thing? Do you not know that a guest is sacred, protected by all the gods? I cannot let them leave the protection of my house. Come on, Lot, cried someone from the back of the crowd. Actually, it was one of the sons-in-law, but Lot did not recognize the voice. The sons-in-law had both strangely migrated to the back of the crowd after leading the men there. Come on, Lot! Just let them come out and play for a minute. We just want to get to, uh, to know them. The entire crowd laughed uproariously at that. Everyone knew what kind of knowledge he was talking about. Someone else called out, Yeah, we just want to make them our bitches, which elicited even more laughter. Lot didn't know what to do. These were the very men that he had worked so hard at pleasing for the last several years. He could not bear the thought of defying their wishes. But at the same time, he knew that his duty as host, mandated by the gods, was to protect any guest in his house. And the only thing that Lot feared more than men was the gods, especially the god of Uncle Abram. He was in a no-win situation, and so he made a desperate move. My friends, he cried out, you know that I cannot do such a thing. Maybe if you had spoken to me before, I could have respected your wishes, but now, now that they have entered my house, I must not allow anything to happen to them. But please, please, if you must rape somebody, I have two daughters. You know them. You know how beautiful they are. Take them. Do with them whatever you will, and the gods will not be angry. But you must spare my guests.
them. Do with them whatever you will. Those were the words that the sisters repeated to themselves over and over again as they stood outside the cave and watched the smoke curl over the ruined city. They had been the words that had shattered their world and all of their illusions. It had been possible up until then for them to delude themselves into thinking that perhaps their father was interested in their welfare, at least a little bit. When they heard that, they knew that they were nothing to him, nothing but things that he could trade for whatever was most needed by him in the moment. It all happened very quickly after that. The two strangers sprang into action, moving faster than the family thought humanly possible. They ran to the door and opened it just enough to pull Lot inside before slamming and barring it. The man outside erupted in cries and curses and then started arguing amongst themselves. Some of them might have been spooked by Lot's talk of the gods, and out of fear they began to turn on the others. The immediate danger seemed to recede. The two strangers turned to the family. This city is cursed, they said. It will be wiped from the face of the earth and you must escape together with all that you hold dear. Take only your lives and the lives of the people you care for. The men spoke so earnestly that everyone believed it immediately. Lot insisted that he had to go and tell the sisters promised husbands of this terrible doom. He seemed certain that they would be so tied to him that they would want to escape with him he still held on to the delusion that they somehow cared about him. So, while the women made their preparations, he went out alone into the streets. He returned after only a few minutes, however, shamefaced and silent. The sisters knew that their intended husbands had laughed in his face. So, they fled, just the four of them, a few household slaves, and the two strange men. The men led the way, and the sisters kept their eyes fixed on the men. So, while they heard explosions and the cries of people and of beasts behind them, they did not see what was happening. The family finally stopped when they reached a small town at the edge of the city's territory. That was when the sisters realized that their mother was no longer with them. They demanded that their father tell them what had happened to her. He would not even meet their eyes, as he told them about how she had stopped and looked back, even as they had fled, and that as she stood there, the destruction of the city fell upon her as well, and she was buried under a pillar of salt. They did not believe him. Perhaps she did stop, they reasoned. Maybe she had decided that it was time to finally leave her husband, and she was just taking advantage of the chaos and destruction to find her own way in the world. They hoped she was still out there, somewhere, and that she would do well. But whatever had actually happened to her, they were mad at her 
for abandoning them and leaving them alone with a man that they completely despised. A woman alone had no name, no identity. Everybody knew that. A woman was defined by her relationship with a man, whether that man be her father, her husband, or her son. The sisters were determined that they would no longer be defined by their father. After the way he had offered them up like two pieces of meat to a slavering mob, they refused to see themselves in that way. Marriage no longer seemed to be an option for them, a prospect that alarmed them not at all after what they had been through in Sodom. And so they had decided that there was only one chance left for them. They had to become mothers. There was only one person available to help them achieve their aim. The fact that he was their father had given them some pause. But the more they thought about it, the more right it seemed. It would be a great tragedy if, in addition to all of the destruction that they had seen, their family was wiped from the face of the earth. They might despise Lot, but they knew that it was their duty to ensure that his seed endured to the next generation. They had found the wild grapes growing a half mile from the mouth of the cave a couple of weeks ago. After a few tries, they had managed to get some of the juice to ferment. It tasted awful, but it was actually fairly potent, and that was the main thing. They had filled their father's cup over and over again all afternoon. By the time that he had retired to his bed, he didn't even know where he was. He actually thought that he was back traveling with his uncle, back in much better days. Now they figured that his snores had risen to the greatest crescendo. It was time. The eldest would go first and the youngest would go the following night. As she sent her sister off with a kiss and a whispered prayer to the god of fertility, the younger daughter shivered. She was not looking forward to what she would soon have to do, but she would do her duty to herself and to her family when the time came. How was it? She whispered to her sister when she heard her return in the dark of night. You don't want to know, was the answer. He had already vomited all over himself before I got there. The whole cave smells of sickness, the sickness that is in his soul. But I got it done. That's all that matters.
And so, allow me to introduce you to two young women. The first is called Emoab, and the second is named Emammon. They were the daughters of Lot, but that is no longer their identity. For they are mothers now, and they have their fine young sons walking beside them as they leave their father to live or to die in his cave. They care not which one he chooses. They go to find wives for their sons. They are not merely the mothers of their two sons, Moab and Ben-Ami. They are the mothers of the nations that will spring from them. They, by their continuing courage and resourcefulness, will birth the nations of the Moabites and the Ammonites. Freed from the chains that bowed them to a man that they despised, but who was free to use them as he chose, they finally know and embrace who they truly are. I wrote this episode not as a retelling of the famous story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but as the story of two women whom I am calling Emoab and Emmon, because that is the identity that they ultimately embraced. The destruction of the cities of the plain is merely the setting of this tale, but it is a setting that I need to say a few things about. Many archaeologists have gone looking for the evidence of these destroyed cities. And while the ancient Near East is full of ruined cities, nothing has been found that really fits this story, especially nothing that corresponds to the time frame of the story in Genesis. So, while the story may well have been informed by memories of cities that were destroyed in cataclysmic events, it seems unlikely that the specific historical events that are described happened in the way that they are described. Rather than the working out of particular historical events, the story seems to have circulated as a kind of cautionary tale, a warning to cities and nations not to behave as the city of Sodom has done. But what had Sodom done wrong? What was the sin that was evil enough to condemn an entire metropolis to destruction? I know the answer that you have probably heard before, that the city was condemned because of the practice of homosexuality, but that is quite clearly not what the story describes. It is true that at one point the men of Sodom tried to gang-rape two strangers, identified as angels, who have come to town, but gang-rape has nothing to do with what we would call homosexual orientation or even homosexual desire. Gang rape is an age-old strategy used by armies, bandits, and other large groups to intimidate and manipulate vulnerable individuals or groups. 
It is about the exercise of power, and that is the only aspect of it that any of its participants enjoy. Gang rape is often employed indiscriminately. The victims can be men, women, or children. And yes, the story in Genesis does condemn the men of Sodom for their attempted rape, as well it should, but I think just as clearly that is only one reason why Sodom is condemned. The story of the destruction of Sodom is part of a longer story in Genesis in which the persistent theme is the treatment of strangers. The story begins when three strangers show up outside the tent of Abraham and are given excellent hospitality. Abraham's and Sarah's treatment of these three strangers is sharply contrasted with the way in which two of the same strangers are treated in Sodom. The divine protection of strangers and travelers was something that nearly all ancient Mediterranean civilizations took for granted. The ancient people who told this story likely would have agreed that a city like Sodom should have been destroyed by God, or by the gods, for so horribly mistreating strangers that it would even have subjected them to gang rape. But, as I say, I am not particularly or primarily interested in the fate of Sodom in this story, but in the destinies of Emmoab and Emmon. Their story is really little more than a common arc for women in their time and place. Offered in marriage by their father to build up his own social and economic advantage to men who clearly care little for them, offered up to an angry mob intent on committing gang rape in order to save their father's face, left in a position where they are expected to serve that same father who cares so little for them as individuals. These are the kinds of things that normally happen to women in that world. What is extraordinary about these two women is that they choose to step up and take charge of their own destiny. And yes, we do have all kinds of problems with how they choose to do that. I hope I don't need to explain what is wrong with the fact that they chose to get pregnant by their father without his consent. But from the point of view of their culture and their time, it was probably the only option available to them. The Bible has several stories of women who do questionable or downright immoral things in order to have children, These women are celebrated for their decisive and courageous action, even if the way they go about it is wrong. The story of Emoab and Emmon, as told in the book of Genesis, makes it quite clear that they had been counted as nothing other than commodities to be used at their father's will. Given the sick system that they were trapped in, I find it rather inspiring that they found a way to stick it to their father and build their own identity. Good for them. They were dealt a losing hand and somehow found a way to lay down a full house. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. I am now working on a monthly schedule for this podcast, and so the next episode will come out on the last Wednesday in September. So I hope that if you enjoyed this story, you will remain subscribed until the next one at the end of next month. 
In the meantime, tell other people, rate and review this episode on iTunes or some other platform to help other people find it. The theme music for Retelling the Bible is Ada. The mood music for this episode is Killers. Both are by Kevin McLeod, are licensed under the Creative Commons, and can be found at incompetech.com. Send your requests, comments, and questions to at Retelling Bible on Twitter or to our Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes and commentary for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.